John chapter 5, verse 16 through 47. So last couple weeks, um, we, were, we did Q&A this past week. And the week before that, we learned about desperation. And that desperation ultimately must lead us to Jesus. The nobleman had a desperate situation. His son was dying. And this guy, he was rich. He, had, he basically had it all, but he didn't have control over the fact that his son was dying. And so he is willing to try anything. So he comes up to Jesus. He heard, okay, this guy works miracles. Maybe if he just visits my son, maybe, I don't know, I'll just try it. Maybe he'll be healed. And so Jesus says, go your way. Your son is healed. And he simply believes that word and goes home. Jesus says, unless you guys see miraculous signs, you'll by no means believe. He knew this nobleman needed that miracle to happen in order to believe. And he and his household believed. You see, because his commitment outlasted his desperation. It wasn't just that he was, he was desperate and he left it at that, but he believed in the, in the word of God. Because the word of God has the power to turn desperation into restoration. So that's what we learned last week, or two weeks ago. And then if you remember, shortly after that, we learned about the guy, you know, the, the guy who was crippled for 38 years, and uh, he was sitting in that pool at Bethesda. And they were told that there's an angel that stirs up the waters, and the first one that gets in gets healed. It sounds really messed up. And so this guy's just got kind of sitting there, and his place in line to try to just crawl on into this pool so that he could be healed. And Jesus visits him and asks, do you want to be made well? And the guy's like, uh, duh, yes, of course. But like, I have nobody to take me and put me into the well. But Jesus says, it's not about what you do. It's about your trust. The best thing that you can do, in fact, is trust in God. And from there, if you remember, the guy was told to take up his mat. And the instant in believing, it wasn't before, it wasn't after, in the act of believing in Jesus, he picked up his mat and he walked. He was given the strength in the moment. You see, because sometimes we think that faith has to come first, but God gives us the faith as you obey, as you trust, and then he heals you. And so after that, he takes up his mat. And what's funny, if you remember, the Pharisees, the, the religious leaders of the day, basically yelled at him because they were so strict about obeying the law that they made up their own laws to kind of just fill it out so that they could be righteous in their own eyes. Maybe you know people like this. They, they kind of, they want to look better than someone else. And so they'll like, they'll be the, the goody two-shoes in the class. They'll, they'll be the teacher's pet. And everyone hates them because they're just like, you know, they're, they're suck-ups. And they'll, they'll do whatever they can to look good in someone else's eyes. But you know, deep down inside, they're empty inside. And they do all that they can to make other people's lives miserable. But that's exactly what happened here is the Pharisees, these religious leaders saw this man and said, don't you know that picking up your mat is work? You're basically breaking the Sabbath. And so because of that, the guy was afraid and he blamed it on Jesus because he didn't know the one who can heal you can also defend you. And so this guy goes up to Jesus and then Jesus is uh, accused of misleading this guy into breaking the Sabbath. And here we are in verse 16. It says, for this reason, the Jews persecuted Jesus and sought to kill him over telling a guy to pick up his mat and walking. Isn't that ridiculous? Doesn't that just seem really silly? But you can see this, there's a jealousy here. They didn't want Jesus to take over. They didn't want Jesus to be their Lord. Because they, by Jesus coming into this world, he exposed the intentions of their heart. It says, because he has done these things on the Sabbath. Verse 17, but Jesus answered them, my father has been working until now, and I have been working. What he means by this is, you know, there was an understanding in the day. The Jewish people knew very well that in six days, God created the heavens and the earth. And what did he do on the seventh day? He rested. That's exactly right. But they knew, the Jewish understanding, and we understand as well, that when God rested on the seventh day, 
It's not like he just stepped back and was like, well, that's it for me. I'm out of the picture now. That's called deism. Deism is that God creates a world and steps away and lets it run. He got, it's like a clock. He winds up and lets it go by itself. And so people that believe in deism believe that God created the world, but he's not personal. He doesn't actually love you. He, he wants nothing to do with you. He just kind of like set you up. Theism is believing in a, in a personal God. And so being theists, the Jews knew that not only did God create us, but he sustains us. And that's what we see throughout the Bible. It says in Acts chapter 17, verse 28a, For in him we, lo- we live and move and have our being. Colossians 1, 16 through 17 says, For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things consist. We know that God doesn't get weary. He doesn't get tired, really. He doesn't actually need to rest. What was the rest for? It was an example for us. We need to rest. You guys ever tired? I'm tired all the time. You guys ever weary? You ever just going through a day? Like, what is your most hated day in the week? Tell me. Like, raise your hand. Tuesday, Thursday, Monday. It's Monday for a lot of us that work a 9 to 5 job. Monday's my day off, so I don't have a problem with Monday, but a lot of people that work in, in, you know, a regular 9 to 5 job Monday through Friday, Monday's the worst because it's the start of your work week. And you're tired. And then what's the day that you look forward to the most? It's Friday. Friday. Got to get down on Friday. No. (laughs) Wow. How did that come out of left field? Sorry. Um, But you can go through your week and often get weary. But you see, when Jesus made the Sabbath, it's because we needed a Sabbath. The Sabbath is just a day to rest. And the Jewish people turned it into more work. It was actually more work to rest on the Sabbath than it was to enjoy the Sabbath. They got so particular with the rules that they would look at, you know, in Deuteronomy, it talks about, you know, there's certain rules for using the bathroom when you're out at war. And they're like, well, you know what? Jerusalem is basically like a battleground. So no one can use the bathroom on the Sabbath. Can you imagine? Like, what kind of rest is that? So people would make up their own rules, their own regulations. And I feel like sometimes we Christians do the same thing. We make so much work out of what God intends to do as rest. Jesus says that I am your rest. He is the Sabbath. He is the Lord of the Sabbath. That's what he says in Mark chapter uh, 2, verse 27 and 28. The Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. Therefore, the Son of Man is also the Lord of the Sabbath. Tim Keller had this great quote. He says, the world says go out and perform, but Jesus says rest. He says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, all of you that are just tired, and I will give you rest. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. Basically just saying like, man, you feel like so burdened. You feel so heavy. Mine is light. Let's trade. He's willing to take that for you. If God sustains creation... That means you don't have to worry about anything. Think about this. God is in control of every molecule in the galaxy. If God creates something, it's not like he just creates it and leaves it alone. He works in that thing. When he created the world, he sustains all of creation. When he created you, he breathed into you, he sustains your life. You're not going to die one day sooner than than the day he has appointed for you. And so when God begins a good work in you, what does he do? Philippians tells us, come on, Bible students, God begins a good work in you, and he is what? Faithful to complete it. Exactly. When God starts something, he finishes it. He finishes that good work that he started, starts in you. So since God is a sustainer and he's in, in control, he's sovereign over everything, realize this. Here's something that I've thought about this past week. Perhaps there is actually no such thing as coincidence in our life. Perhaps there is actually no such thing as chance or randomness. You know, I was reading a a book by this guy named R.C. Sproul. He's He's a little off on a couple things, like when we talk about Calvinism, but 
for the most part, he's a pretty solid guy. So he talks about how he thinks that chance and coincidence are terms developed by atheists to say that chance over time causes things. Randomness, if you just give it enough time, causes things. Like it has causal powers. But randomness and chance are just, just traits. We just give a name to something that we see in nature. But really, the person working behind it is God. Think about it. If God is sovereign over every circumstance, can there any be just any coincidence? Now, we might not understand everything that happens. Let's say that you go to uh, a mall and you're, you know, this happened a couple weeks ago. I was evangelizing and I saw a person that I evangelized to months ago just in the mall. And I was praying for him that very day. And when I saw him, I was like, God must want me to talk to him. God must want me to text him. Now, I could have thought, well, that's a strange coincidence and done nothing with it. And maybe, you know what? Maybe my finite understanding of that situation was wrong. Maybe uh, the reason I saw him was for God's intentions that I have no idea until I go to heaven. But the point is, if God is in control of every single thing, I don't have to ever be worried about my life. I can just rest in the fact that he's in charge. I've used this analogy before, but it's kind of like when you're little, how many of you are just starting to drive? You've noticed this already. You, uh, you're in the car, and when someone else is making a turn, you know how to drive. You're, like, looking with them to see if any oncoming uh, car is coming with, uh, on the other side of the road or something. But when you're little, you don't look when someone's making that turn. You just trust that they know what they're doing. But once you're given the tools, you're like, oh, and I'm worried. to Slow down. You're, you're a backseat driver. But when you're young, you can just sleep in the car. You, you're perfectly relaxed and rested knowing that your dad, or your mom, or whoever's driving the car is in control. It's the same way with God. If you surrender control to God, you don't have to worry about anything. You can just rest. But here's the problem, right? When I say rest, trust in God, the problem is many of you don't know who God is. You don't have a personal relationship with him. You ever do a trust fall? I would say let's do it here, but I might actually drop you. So <laughs> let's not do that. But you're only willing to do a trust fall if you trust the person, if you know the person. If the, I mean, like, if, I don't know, just take Nick Stoltzfus. I trust him to catch me. He'll catch me, right, Nick? Maybe not after. Yes. <laughs> anyway, moving on, inside joke. Um, but if I went up to some guy that just came out of jail and I said, all right, I trust you, man. We just met and I just go for it, I don't know. It's probably a bad decision. I probably shouldn't trust him. But the key is, the more that you know Jesus, the more you can trust him, because the more you get to know him. The more that you read God's word, the more that you know Jesus, you develop a relationship with Jesus, and you can trust him with your tomorrow. It's just as simple as that. It's just, are you willing to take that first step of saying, you know what? Maybe I will get to know God. Maybe I will pick up the Bible and read it for myself. Maybe you've never even really done that before in your life. Try it out. And see that you, you don't know who God is. See that you, he doesn't speak to you. That the living God doesn't come out of the Bible and show you great and mighty things that you, don't, that you do not know. So Jesus was basically saying, hey, listen, the, my Father in heaven has been working until now. We all know that. That God sustains creation even on the Sabbath. It's not like he's taking a break on the Sabbath. It's like, well, well, I got to rest on the Sabbath. So here we go. Oh, no, the world's out of control. They knew that God sustains creation. And he says, and I have been working. Here's the cool thing. God is working behind the scenes. Jesus was saying, it's my work. I have to do this. I'm always working. The question is, are you willing to enter my rest? I'll do the working, you do the resting. You might be in a situation that just seems so impossible. You might be in a a situation that I don't even fully understand, that you feel like no one really understands? Do you believe that God understands what you're going through? Do you believe that God knows all things? Do you believe that God is in control? Sometimes we look at the Bible and we look at Psalms like Psalm 11, verse 4. One of my favorite Psalms, it says, The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold. His eyelids test the sons of men. I love that verse because I feel that's exactly my life. We think, 
okay, God must have eyelids up there and he must blink. He must miss the things that I'm, that I'm going through. Like, like he doesn't see. But God sees all things that you're going through. He knows your heart even better than you know yourself. And because of that, he's working all things together for good to those that love God, to those that are called according to his purpose. Question is, do you want to be a part of his plan or do you want to be against his plan? He's not just sitting back and sleeping, but he's active in your life if you're willing to let him, no matter how dark the circumstances are. Going on, verse 18. So after he defends himself, Jesus says, listen, I always work. This is what I do. Verse 18. Therefore the Jews sought all the more to kill him because he not only broke the Sabbath, but also said that God was his father, making himself equal with God. Many different people have differing opinions regarding Jesus. You know, the Muslims say that Jesus was a sinless and blessed man, but he wasn't God. The Buddhists say that Jesus was an enlightened man. Who do you believe that Jesus was? Do you believe that he's a person that existed in history? Here's where we have to go logically and just sit down and think about this for a second. No matter where you, where you come from or what you believe about Jesus, right here, right now, let's deal with it. Who do you think that Jesus was? Because right here, Jesus claimed to be God. By saying that God was his father, this, the Jewish understanding was you didn't just say that God's your father. And when Jesus said that, he was making himself equal with God because he himself was God. Later on, he says, I am. He used the name Yahweh to not just say that he was deity, but he was the same as um, he was a part of the Trinity. He was God who was with Moses and before. He was the one who created. He was the one who was before all things, and in him all things consist. So you have a couple options. If Jesus says that he's God, you're not... Some of you know this as the trilemma, but we'll just go through it again. Um, this is a great thing for those of you that are Christians and you are studying these things. This is a good thing to, to jot down. God is either lunatic, he's liar, or he's Lord. Called the trilemma. It's because when Jesus says that he's God, it's, you're not left with any room to say, Oh, he's a, he, I like him. He's a good person. He was an enlightened man. Because he didn't leave us that option. If I said, Hey guys... I'm God. You should think that I'm crazy. <laughs> or So if I say that I'm God and I'm really not, what am I doing? I'm lying to you. If I'm not lying to you, I'm crazy. You wouldn't say any random person that says that he's God is a good person because he's purposely deceiving people to follow him. If he isn't really God, then he's deceiving people. That's wrong. If he's just crazy, why would you believe a crazy person? I mean, we don't go follow those homeless people that claim to be God in New York City. It's like, yeah, you know, there's a homeless man just came up to me and said that he was Jesus. And I believed him. Yeah. I've had people do that to me before. And it's just like, yeah. Especially when we go to England. Uh, so he's either lunatic, he's liar, or he really is who he said he is. And that you have to base on other witnesses. And here in this chapter, what's so cool about it is Jesus doesn't just say, yeah, believe in me, the end. He gives you witnesses that testify that he really is who he says he is. And I believe with all my heart that Jesus really is God. Not just because I grew up in the church. Not just because I read the Bible and I'm like, well, I better teach something. So I better tell people that Jesus is God. Because that would make me what? That would make me either crazy or a liar. Or I'm on the right track. I'm either intentionally deceiving you right now and saying that Jesus is God for whatever purpose. I, it's beyond me. Or I'm crazy and just deluded. Or maybe I'm on the right track and Jesus really is God. But let's, don't just take my word for it. We can continue on. He says in verse 19, Then Jesus answered and said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, the Son of Man, uh, the Son can do nothing of himself, but what he sees the Father do, for whatever he does, the Son also does in like manner. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself does, and he will show him greater works than these, that you may marvel. For the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, even so the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son, that all should honor the, uh, that all should honor the Son as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. All right, really confusing passage. I know. You, if you guys did not get lost in that, 
you guys are way smarter than me because I got lost reading that. As I was studying this, I was like, what in the world does that mean? Well, what he's basically saying is that Jesus isn't just an ambassador. He's not just a prophet. He's not just sent by God to give a message and that's it. But actually, if you don't honor Jesus, you don't honor God the Father. That's what he's saying. He's equal with God. He was very plain to these religious leaders. He's saying, listen, I am who I say I am. That he really is God. And he's willing to prove it with testimony. And he says that he's given the power to judge. Now this is unthinkable. Here's a man. That it was unthinkable to them that this man could be God himself. Let alone, he says, and I have the power to judge the dead. This wasn't just a nice guy saying this. Was he really who he said he was? Ask yourself that question. Do I really believe that Jesus was God? And if you don't, maybe it's because you've never really experienced him before. Like we talked about on the night of prayer. That faith isn't an experiment. Faith is an experience. You need to meet God himself. And just, you know, going through my testimony, some of you know it before. Uh, me say it before. But I grew up in a Christian home. I was homeschooled till third grade. I went to uh, Cornerstone Christian School from third grade to eighth grade. I stayed back in third grade. <laughs> but, yeah. And then I skipped sixth grade, so go figure that. I guess two years of third grade made sixth grade or something like that. Um, Cornerstone till eighth grade. I graduated there, went to Oldbridge High School uh, all years in high school. And then I went to college, etc. But I grew up in the church, and I went to a Christian school. So I kind of know where you guys are coming from, regardless of where you're at. Because if you went to public school, I can relate with you. If you're homeschooled, I can relate with you. And if you uh, went to Christian school, I can relate with you too, at some point or another. And here's the thing. It wasn't until I was a freshman in high school that it really, really made sense to me. Up until then, you know, the beginning of my freshman year, I started going to public school and I met a lot of new friends. You know, at first I was like, oh my gosh, she said shut up and you're not allowed to say that in Christian school. And so I'm freaking out and then people are cursing. And I'm like, just like, oh no, what do I do? <laughs> like, you shouldn't say that because, uh, well, I guess I can't stop you. So. Um, so it was very hard making friends in the beginning. Eventually got into it. And then I started listening to some rap music. You know, I started listening to Eminem, 50 Cent. Like, yeah. But what's really weird is you guys know my phases. I, was, I, was, I had red spiked hair. I had, like, the studded belt. Like, totally corny. You know, like, what's really funny is the only style that's not repeated like, people, it's cool to dress in 70s clothes, 80s clothes. The 90s is like the dead era. Like, you can't ever repeat the 90s. So I got stuck in that awkward 10-year span. Um, and so while I was dressing like that, I was listening to rap. And then the minute that I started dressing, like, in the baggy jeans and, like, wearing the chains and stuff, then I started listening to Dashboard Confessional and emo music. <laughs> Go figure. <laughs> I don't know what was wrong with me. I don't know why God chose me of all people. I was definitely not on the, the, the VIP list. Um, but all that to say, when I was a freshman, I was just really confused. I mean, who really knows who they are when, when you're in high school anyway? You're figuring yourself out. And while I was a freshman, uh, you know, I was talking, you know, here's self-disclosure self right now. I was talking to some girls and... I didn't really have a real serious relationship. I just saw it almost like a game. Like, my friends were dating girls. I was dating girls. Okay, I'd, you know, meet up with this girl, then meet up with that girl, date her friend, and then her friend. Like, it was pretty messed up. And now looking back at it, it's just like, I regret a lot of that because I really had no idea what I was doing or what I was getting myself into. But you know what? I didn't, I didn't see any reason not to. It's like, why wouldn't I go out and, and just kind of mess around with these girls? What's stopping me? It seems fun. It seems natural. All my friends are doing it. What was stopping me? But you see, that's because I viewed religion, I, I viewed a relationship with Jesus as just a bunch of rules. I viewed it like the Pharisees did. Oh, uh, well, I guess if you're going to be holy, you got to obey all these rules. Can't go to the bathroom on this day. And can't do this and can't do that. And I was like, well, that's kind of boring, but I don't want to go to hell. So I, I guess I got to basically get as close to the line as possible without stepping over the line which is impossible. If you're dancing around the line, you're going to cross over. If you're kind of flirting with your girlfriend and you're like, well, we're not having sex, it's going to get there if you don't set those boundaries way before. I'm just telling you like it is. 
But you see, it wasn't until my very first mission trip going to Hungary uh, when I was a freshman in high school that God really got a grip on my life. It's because I went, I don't even know why I went. I think I went because my friends wanted to go. So I went, and I'm not even saying I'm a bad person. I just, I had no idea where I was going with, with my life. I wasn't necessarily even that depressed or anything. It's just I had no direction. But going on that mission trip, it was the first time that I saw God wanted not just me to, to obey these rules and say, all right, and you should keep yourself in these confines. But he says, I want you to have freedom in me by living out who you really are. Unless you know Jesus, unless you know your creator, you will never really know who you are. You're always going to search for your favorite music. Or you're going to search for the next band or the next style or the next thing or the next girl. You're never going to know who you are because you won't know why you were made. That is so important to realize. And I didn't know why I was made until I saw God use me. And so I witnessed, some of you know, I witnessed to this one guy who's uh, in the Hungarian army. And he spoke really well, uh, really good English. He's about the age I am now, 25. And I was like 14. I was like five foot one and a half as a freshman, you know, and that's probably why I didn't really, <laughs> I didn't make the basketball team my freshman year and I was really upset and then I stopped playing basketball forever. <laughs> but um, that's my confessional moment for the day. This is good therapy. Um, me witnessing to this guy and in the most unlikeliest circumstances, I looked like a freak. I really did. I was a short little kid with red hair speaking to this guy in a, in a different country who's in the army. He's built dude. And I'd share the gospel with him, and he accepted Jesus on the spot. And I can't ever explain to you that feeling I got there, but it was almost like, if I can describe in words, it's like the universe aligned and I realized my purpose in life. Maybe you've never had that experience before, but that changed everything. I went home, I broke up with the girl that I was with, and I was like, I am willing to sell whatever it is. I don't want to miss out on what God has for me. That was the most exciting moment of my life because I was willing to give up anything. And some of you aren't willing to give up anything for the Lord because you don't realize the joy that is in Christ Jesus because you don't know him. But if you just say, Lord, show yourself to me. Jesus, would you speak to me when I read your word? He will. He's faithful. He will speak to, me, speak to you. He's done that with me, and he's done that with so many here. And what I love more than anything is talking to other people about how Jesus has changed their lives. I went to a Bible study last night at a different church, and just hearing from this one guy I've never really talked to before in my life. And I was able to just enjoy conversation with him because I saw how much he loved Jesus. It was contagious. And you might not have anything in common with some of these people except Jesus, and that's enough. Because it's so exciting to see how God changed the person's life, brought them from this point to that point. It's a radical thing, and it's proof that God is real. Going on in uh, verse 24, it says, Most assuredly I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who have sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. Most assuredly, I say to you, the hour is coming, and now is, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself, and has given him authority to execute judgment also, because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. I can of myself do nothing. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is righteous, because I do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. You're not judged based on the amount of good that you do. You're based on how you respond to Jesus. It's not how much works that you do. It's not how much, like, you obey the Bible and you don't curse and you don't, like, man, if there was anyone religious, it was me. I've never cursed in my life. I just haven't. That doesn't mean I'm better than you. That just means I was more religious than you. Because I thought by not cursing, that somehow makes me better than other people and gives me like a closer spot with Jesus. I didn't say that out loud, but subconsciously, that's what I've thought. 
And there's some words that I, I still don't say to this day that aren't even curse words, but I just train myself to never say those things. And so when I was out, you know, messing, out, uh, messing around with some people, I would go home and be like, well, I, at least I don't curse. At least I'm righteous in this way. But the Bible says if you've broken the law in one aspect, you've broken them in all aspects. You're no better than anyone else. You see, it's not how much you do, it's how much you trust. Are you willing to put your faith in a person who saves you? Because no matter how many good works you do, the Bible says that all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. Like, the best thing that you can do, you're still dirty, you're still a sinner. Even if you sin one time, that's a huge mistake. You can't be like, well, Jesus, you can pretty much forgive me. I've done so much good in my life. I just killed one person, right? Just one. I mean, think of all the other people. I mean, okay, there was like a mouse that was really annoying me and I killed him too. That was it. It was a guy in a mouse costume. Now let me into heaven. What will you do when Jesus sees you at the pearly gates one day when you die? What will you say to him? If he asks you, why should I let you into heaven? I don't think I know you. What would you say? My mom used to ask me all the time when I was little, and that kind of freaked me out. <laughs> like, you know what you're going to say when Jesus sees you in heaven? I'm like, uh, he died for me, I think. You know, when I was like three years old, but it stuck with me. What would you say? Would it be based on your works? Or would it be based on the living word? Because just as Jesus... The living word has the power to judge us. We see a glimpse of that power in the written word, the Bible. When you read his word, you're able to have that same judgment. You're, you're kind of like, you ever read the Bible and you're just convicted? You're like, ah, oh, I have definitely done that before. Oh, I am, I, it's like a mirror to you. You see how dirty that you really are. Because the word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than a two-edged sword. But also here, what we see is, the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. And those that are uh, at the end of the age, when Jesus comes back, there will be a resurrection of the dead. And there will be a resurrection where you get a new body. But think about this. Both people that go to heaven and hell get a new body. But the one that goes to hell gets a new body, so it can outlast, or it can withstand the everlasting torture and torment that is in hell. That's a radical thought. The body that you have isn't sufficient to last in hell, and you actually need a resurrection and a different body. I think too many churches don't talk about hell enough. And it's not a scare tactic, but it is a good question. Do you know where you're going? You see... It's not just that we're mistaken and we're just like, well, I just didn't know Jesus. I'm sorry. It's, the truth is we all know. Deep down inside, we all know that God's real. We all know that Jesus died for our sins and all those things. The question is, are you willing to submit to him? Because if you're not, there is punishment for those people that disobey. It's not if, if we just saw, uh, you know, a rapist go into court and the judge says, ah, you can just go off clean, whatever. Go back on the streets. The family would be devastated. You wouldn't say that's justice. You wouldn't call that guy a good judge. You would call him an evil judge, letting this guy back in the streets with nothing. But you see, Jesus took our punishment for us. It's not enough to just say, yeah, you just go off clean. But Jesus took the punishment upon himself so that we that trust in him can have everlasting life. But the person who says, oh, I got it. I don't need Jesus to cover my sins. That person has to be punished. There has to be uh, uh, retribution for the things that you've done. And if you don't think that you're that evil, you know, you just have to take a good look at yourself. Because I know deep down inside of all the things that I've done. And if we really think about it, we're a lot worse than we think. But that also means that we're a lot more loved than what we think. Because as we have that guilt, and we're like, Lord, I'm just so sorry. I feel so guilty. Because some of you dwell on it all the time. And you just feel guilty all the time. But that's okay, because Jesus knows even more things than, than what you've done. All those bad things that you don't even know that you've done. And he still forgives you, which means that you're more loved than what you actually think. Jesus died for us, not while we were trying our hardest, but while we were still sinners. That's how much he loves you. You know, sin is just missing the mark, and we've talked about that before. That's really all it is. It's an archer's term. You try to hit the target. You miss the bullseye. You've sinned. 
Even if it's just a little bit, you just sin a little bit. But even a little bit of sin can cause a lot of destruction. You ever just tell one little lie and it just puts you in a whole heap of trouble? You know, I just basically told that person half the truth and then it just leads you and just spirals into just terror and, and all kinds of hurtful things. And then while you're confronting that person, why didn't you just tell me the truth? Well, I just thought it was just a little lie. You know, little sin can have big consequences. Go on into verse 31. But if I bear witness of myself, my witness is not true. There is another who bears witness of me, and I know the witness which he witnessed of me is true. You have sent to John, and he bore witness to the truth. Yeah, I do not receive testimony from man, but I say these things that you may be saved. What does that mean? He says, if I bear witness of myself, my witness is not true. Basically, people who are genuinely seeking God have no excuse because we have witnesses of Jesus' godhood. We know who Jesus is through creation. We know through the Bible. We have all these different proofs, his resurrection, and we're going to go through some of those witnesses. But what he's just saying is like, if all I'm saying is like, just believe me just because, you shouldn't believe me. It wouldn't hold up in court. But he's going to give us a couple of those witnesses later on. He says, I don't receive testimony from men, basically saying the testimony that John the Baptist had, it was further evidence to the fact that he was God, but he didn't depend on it. But a person who followed after John's testimony would logically end up with Jesus. Because people in Jesus' day uh, were following John the Baptist because he was drawing crowds. He's preparing the way for Jesus, the Messiah, to come in and save the world. And so he was gathering all these people, all these crowds were coming out to John the Baptist. And if you really believe John's teachings, he pointed the way. If you remember, we talked about this a while ago, that he was a voice of the word. He was pointing to Jesus. So the logical conclusion of his ministry was following Jesus. And that's the same thing here. If all you get out of here in youth group is follow youth group, hang out in youth group, Instagram on youth group, Twitter youth group, Facebook youth group, and it doesn't connect you into a larger church, you've kind of missed the point. It's not about a building. It's not about a group of people. It's about the church of Jesus, his bride. And that means loving one another, even the people that you don't respect, even the people that you don't like, even the people that you don't get along with. If they are in Jesus, they are your brothers and sisters of the Lord. I've always thought it weird when people say that your parents are your brothers and sisters. <laughs> you ever think that's weird? Like, yeah, I'm your brother. Like, you're my dad. No, I'm your brother in the Lord. You're still my dad. But you know what? You got to love them too. If they're in Jesus, even if they're not in Jesus and they're your parents, you got to love them too. And that's the beautiful message of the gospel. Sometimes we're like, well, they're not deserving of my love. Uh, neither are you. But God loves you. Continuing on, he says in verse 35, He was the burning and shining lamp, and you were willing for a time to rejoice in his light. What does that mean? Is it, like, was he being literal? Is this one of these passages you take literal? He was a burning and shining lamp. John the Baptist was a lamp. Yeah, he was shining, and it was awesome. It was, a, it was a miracle. The first miracle in the Bible is there was a lamp that talked and baptized people. No. <laughs> That's ridiculous. What he's saying is that John wasn't the source of light, but he shined the light to point to Jesus. And he says, you're willing for a time to rejoice in his light, but are you willing to continue on that ministry and follow after me? Some of us are going to follow Jesus only for a time. Some of you here will only be in youth group just for a time. Some of you here are on fire now, but there was a time in which you weren't. There was a time you walked away from God, but now you're back. The question is, are you going to follow Jesus for the rest of your life? Are you willing to make that sacrifice? And like, you know what? I've had that glimpse. I've tasted and seen that the Lord is good, and I'm willing to put everything else on the table because I know nothing else in the world will satisfy me. It's just that continual reminder. And we re remove the word of God, when you remove the church out of the picture, you go off to college or you go off to school, it's easy to lose sight of that because you're not surrounding yourself with the light. you got to bring it with you in your heart. You can't hide that light underneath your bed. You have to bring it out in the open. A city that is on a, on a hill can't be hidden because it shines light on the top of the hill. But if you're not shining the light, it's easy to get burnt out. It's easy to get weary and that's why we need to go back to the Sabbath rest. We need to go back to Jesus, who is only the source of real comfort. 
These people, though, that follow after John the Baptist and they just kind of leave, they don't have real roots. You know, when there's a plant, um, if you have a plant and it's growing its roots and they're very shallow roots, it's really easy to pull it out. But if the roots are deep, it doesn't matter how hard that you're pulling, it's going to stay down in there. And that's how we have to be as a church is we're trees planted next to other trees and our roots are growing deep in each other so that if one's getting pulled, the rest can hold up that person together. We can be praying for one another. Hey, I'm struggling with this. Man, can you just pray for me? Hey, can you just, just reach out to me? Can you just meet up with me right now? I know it's like one in the morning. Can you just talk to me for a little bit? You know how much comfort I've received from people that are Christian brothers and sisters that are just willing to stay up with me? Willing to, I can just rely on them for anything? If you don't have a person like that, you need to find someone like that. A person that, that sticks closer, uh, a trustworthy friend that sticks closer than a brother. You need one of those people in your life that, that's going to walk life with you and bear one another's burdens. And I know what you're thinking. Some of you are like, man, I've been waiting for that forever. And I feel so alone. It's okay to feel like that. It's okay to feel alone sometimes. But don't stay there. And that's what I'm saying. Like, we have this church for a reason. It's so that you don't have to be alone. Besides the fact that you have the Holy Spirit inside of your heart, so you're never really alone. But we have each other to, to go around each other. And regardless, like, man, I don't care who you are. I will hang out with you. I will spend time with you. Like, I'm not the best with, like, like meeting up with people all the time. But I am willing to make that effort so that the last thing I want is for people in this group to leave here, to go to college and be like, man, I spent four years in that youth group and I felt so alone while I was there. May that never be said of our youth group. May we be the group that is so tightly knit that regardless of what people look like or what hobbies they have or whatever they do in life, whatever sins they commit, they are tightly knit together because the love of Jesus unites them. Let's be that church. So continuing on, verse 36, Jesus says, But I have a greater witness than John, for the works which the Father has given me to finish, the very works that I do bear witness of me that the Father has sent me. So now he's going to go into four witnesses that show that he's true. First of all, the works. Verse 37, he says, And the Father himself who sent me has testified of me. You have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form. Actually, so that's the second one. First one is John the Baptist. Second one are the works. And thirdly, it's the Father's testimony of him. So first of all, we had the John the Baptist. We already talked about that. But the works, the miracles that Jesus did testified, not like he needed miracles, but they proved that he was God. Here's something interesting. Satan can't replicate the miracles of God. He can only perform tricks. Satan doesn't have the power to create like God does. Satan doesn't have the power to resurrect the dead. Only Jesus does. Only he has the key to death and has the breath of life. All that Satan can do is do a mock-up job. And that's why you see in the Old Testament when Pharaoh is, has all these magicians and astrologers and stuff to replicate the signs that Moses did, there, was, there came a certain point where they couldn't do it anymore. When his son was killed, the firstborn son, there was nothing they could do. There was no God strong enough to bring back his son from the dead. Because only Jesus has the power to resurrect the dead. Only he has the keys. So that's something to, to take as an application for us. So sometimes you think that Satan's as powerful as God. It's just simply not true. The Bible says, he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. If you resist the devil, he will what? He will flee from you. That's a promise in the Bible. Never have to fear, fear like, because Satan's on your, you know, he's just completely attacking you and throwing those fiery darts like he's going to win. You have a power in Jesus that is incomparable. Like, you, there's nothing that can compare to the power that is in Jesus. Not even the powers of hell, the Bible tells us in Romans chapter 8, can separate us from God's love. So when Satan's, like, throwing darts at you, don't imagine them as like these great fiery swords that are like piercing your heart and just like cutting off an arm like, oh, I'm dying. No. Think of them as like spitballs. Fiery spitballs. You know, you're ever in class and just hate it. Don't start doing that. I'll get in trouble. If, like, why are, you throwing, why are you spitting balls at people and just, in, you know, in class? It's because they told us about it in youth group. Don't do that. 
But Satan, all he can do really is annoy you. I mean, he's, he's stronger than you, but you're really not that strong to begin with. So don't worry about that. So Satan can't produce those works. Only God can. Um, secondly, or I should say thirdly, is the testimony of the Father. If you remember when Jesus was being baptized in Matthew chapter 3, I believe, uh, the dove rested on Jesus, and Jesus says, This is my son in whom I am well pleased. So an audible voice shouted from heaven saying, Yep, this is it. This is the one. So he says, All right, I have three witnesses. And then he talks about the fourth one continuing on in verse 38. Uh, verse 37. You have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form, but you do not have his word abiding in you because whom he sent, him you do not believe. You search the scriptures, for in them you think you will have eternal life, and these are they which testify of me. But you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive honor from men, but I know you, that you do not have the love of God in you. Oh my gosh, isn't that the, like the worst thing to hear from Jesus? I know you, that you do not have the love of God in you. I just had to stop there for a second, because maybe that's you tonight. Maybe you don't have the love of God in you. How can you get it? Well, he says, I have come, in verse 43, in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, him you will receive. How can you believe who receive honor from one another and do not seek the honor that comes only from God? Do not think that I shall accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, in whom you trust. For if you believe Moses, you will believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Here's the thing. The logical conclusion of searching the scriptures is finding Jesus. The religious leaders knew the Bible front and back. But the key isn't studying the scriptures, reading your Bible every day necessarily. It's living in your Bible. He says, you do not abide in my word. It's not just saying, yeah, and just yeah, read it and whatever. You realize there's a spiritual dimension to the words of God? Like, this is a paper book. What actually happens to this book doesn't really matter. It's the words, be, it's the concepts behind the book that have power. It's the God behind the book. If you ever read your Bible, you should never start reading your Bible without praying first. You should start off every single time you read your Bible with, and that's why we pray before a Bible study. It's not because we're like mystical or whatever. It's because we sincerely want the Holy Spirit to show us what he means, to lead us to all truth. So start your times of Bible reading asking God, you know what, Lord, I'm going to be distracted today. I'm not even really paying attention. Would you speak to me? Would you show me Jesus? If you're searching the scriptures, the logical conclusion should bring you to Jesus. It's, there's nothing intrinsically life-giving about a paper book. It's the concept and the God behind the book. So don't fail to pray. But maybe you're thinking, well, how can I really believe God's word? How can I really trust the Bible? It's not just because it says so, but we have historical evidence. We have archaeological evidence. We have the resurrection of Jesus, which I would say is the fifth witness besides the scriptures. But later on, he resurrects from the dead. It's a historical event. You know, William Lane Craig and Sean Carroll are... Uh, William Lane Craig is a popular philosopher and Christian apologist, and he's debating a guy named Sean Carroll, who's a cosmologist, who's a really bright, uh, brilliant PhD in his field, and he's debating tonight, actually while we're here, you can go home and you can watch the recap, I encourage you to do that later, they'll talk about God and cosmology later on. There's plenty of evidences that what we have here really is the word of God and the God that we believe in is real. I'm not just saying just like whatever, just take my word for it. Jesus is saying that. He, he's not even saying that either. He's saying, you don't have to take my word for it. There are plenty of evidences that point to me as the truth. But the key is in verse 40, look, it says, but you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. If you don't have the love of God in you, it's because you're not willing to come to Jesus. Anyone that's willing to come to Jesus, he will by no means cast out. If you seek God, you will find him. That's the message of the Bible. And even if you walk away from him, he will leave the 99 sheep to find the one that is lost. And it's not just like, oh, God, look for a little bit, he's gone. He will not come back until he finds that sheep. That is the love of God. It's a love that transcends all understanding. 
He cares about you so very much. No matter how much you've sinned, no matter how lost you feel, and if you are in this place and you don't believe it yet, it's because you're not willing. You need to be, you need to have that childlike faith that says, you know, when you're a child, sometimes you're really gullible, and as you get older, like, well, I'm going to challenge what my parents say, I'm going to challenge what that person says, and that, how can I really trust anybody? Eventually, you've got to trust someone. Why not trust God? What do you have to lose? You die, and God's not real? All right, you live your life a happy life. But if you don't trust God, and he is real, and you die, what happens? You've lost everything. In conclusion, I want to ask you, do you believe God's words? The Pharisees searched the Bible all their lives. They studied, they, they worked hard to be the best people, the, the most moral people, but they missed the entire point. Could it be possible that you're doing the same thing? That you're in church, you're in youth group, and you're missing the whole reason that you should really be here? I'm not saying, like, out of obligation. I'm not saying, like, people better start coming here to meet with Jesus. I get it. Like, I came to youth group because my friend invited me because I like basketball. And I heard that there's basketball and there are some cute girls at youth group. That's why I went. And for a long time, probably, that's why I went. But eventually, like, okay, where are those cute girls now? Where's basketball now? Where's all my friends that were in youth group? They're gone. I hang out with a bunch of high schoolers now. Except for a couple of cool people. That man, the camera, every now and then. Um, a lot of my friends have left. What's keeping me here? I mean, you guys are awesome, but if I really wanted to do something for myself, I'm, I'm not like a selfless person. I would do something selfish. I would go, I could do a lot of things, realistically. Like, I would love to do a lot of things in my life. But I'm willing to give up whatever it is, whether it's climbing and whatever movie, I was going to pursue or acting and music. I'm willing to give that up. Why? Because I see the joy in serving the Lord. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is worth all the risk in the world. I would rather be made a fool and trust in God than be wise in my own eyes and live my life a waste. And so my challenge to you is if you do not know Jesus... If you do not have a relationship with Jesus, don't miss out on the potential of having a relationship with the living God who created you for a purpose, who if you only knew him, would show you great and mighty things which you do not know. Let's pray. Father.